Do you ever wonder about things that are hard to explain? You know, for instance, why do we put suits in a garment bag and put garments in a suitcase? Do you ever wonder why we sing Take Me Out to the Ball Game when we're already at the ball game? Uh, you ever wonder why the third hand on a watch is called the second hand? You ever wonder why phonics isn't spelled how it sounds? You ever wonder what was the best thing before sliced bread? These are just some of the things that I wonder about. Of now you probably all are convinced that I'm crazy, although <laughs> those of you who know me... You came to that conclusion a long time ago, I think. But this morning, I want to look at one verse in John chapter 1, and I want to consider an even more imponderable question than those. It's this question, how can man see the glory of God and live? How can man see the glory of God and live. I want to set the stage for this, if you will. I told you to turn to John chapter 1. Maybe that was a mistake. You can keep your finger there if you want. And turn with me back to Exodus chapter 33. Because I think this will help us to lay the foundation here before we get too far down the road. Uh, so that we'll be able to understand exactly why this matters the way that it does. In Exodus 33... We have an interesting encounter between God and Moses. And I want to start in verse 18 and read a few verses to, 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 to see if we can answer this question. How can man see the glory of God and live? Exodus 33 and begin in verse 18. And he, that's Moses, said, please show me your glory Then God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be. Well, my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. God said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. So we ask that question. I mean, God spoke directly to Moses. That, that relationship is unique in all of Scripture, in all of human history, really. God spoke to Moses, and yet the Lord told him he could not see his face and live. So he shielded Moses from the full exposure of his glory. And even then, If we were to continue reading in Exodus 34, we would see that Moses' face shone so brightly that the people were afraid to look at him until he put a veil over his face. So what we have is God in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, completely inaccessible to man. 
How is it possible for men to cross the great divide between the creature and the creator? Between the mortal and the eternal? Between man and God? Well, the short answer is it's not possible. How can man see the glory of God and live? If we read that scripture, we come to the conclusion it can't be done. It's not possible. There's absolutely no way for us to make up the difference so that we can look on God's face and live. If Moses couldn't do it, then you and I have absolutely no hope at all. Down through the years since Moses, this has remained an impossibility. That's why John chapter 1 is important in the verse I want to look at this morning because John talks about how the impossible became possible. In John chapter 1 and verse 14, John 1 and verse 14, we see this, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I want to just work our way through this verse this morning to understand exactly what John is saying. And then we can consider what it means for us and how we can answer our big question, which is, who is Jesus really? Because this verse gives us another answer to that question. Right here at the start, I want you to see something. At the very beginning of the verse, John says, and the Word became flesh. He switches back from talking about the light, which is what he has been talking about from verse 4 to verse 13. So the last several weeks here, we've been dealing with the idea of Jesus Christ as the light. But now he switches from talking about that to talking about the Word. And I think that's significant. That's important because that takes us all the way back to verse 1. So that we can remember what John has already said about the Word of God. Well, what did John say back in verse 1? This is my, my own amplified version, if you will. In the beginning, before there was... A beginning. The Word already was. And in the beginning, before there was a beginning, the Word was in fellowship with God. And in the beginning, before there was a beginning, the Word was God. So by using this name, by going back to talking about the Word, John is saying something very specific right at the beginning of verse 14 that we need to pay attention to. He's telling us this very simple message that Jesus is highly exalted. Jesus is highly exalted. He is the Word of God. He is the Eternal One. The pre-existent One. The One who is God and who is also face-to-face with God. We talked about that a number of weeks ago now. It's impossible then for Jesus to be any further from us. To be any 
less like us than he is as the word of God. If you think about that, Jesus Christ as the word of God is fundamentally different from us in a way that we cannot possibly really even understand, let alone explain or overcome. There is an otherness, there is a difference between us and him that cannot possibly be spanned. We can't do it. He is infinite. He is transcendent. Because he is equal with God. So when John begins verse 14 by talking about the word, again, he takes us back to verse 1, and he wants us to bear in mind that this is who we are talking about. Who? We are talking, I'm sorry, I used bad grammar. i got to fix that. <clears throat> this, is, this is the one of whom we're speaking. Jesus, the eternal, pre-existent word of God who is equal with the Father. So right off the get-go, we have Jesus Christ, who is highly exalted. But what John says in verse 14 is that this Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. What is John saying? Well, John is saying something else about Jesus here. Yes, He is highly exalted. Yes, He is the Word of God with all that comes along with that truth. But something else, Jesus came down to us. Jesus came down to us. That's what he said. He traded the majesty and the glory of his heavenly position. He traded the the inherent advantages to his infinite and spiritual being. His spirit being, if you will. I'm not saying that very good, I know, but I couldn't think of any better way to write it. And he traded it for physical existence. To to become a physical person in time and space. And there are limitations that go along with that. Right? There are limitations inherent in our physical being that, that God does not have. Because the Bible says God is a spirit. So when Jesus is the Word, and we think of Him as the Word, we we see Jesus in all of His God, all of His divine nature. A Spirit who suffers none of the limitations that we suffer as finite physical beings. And He traded that. It's important for you to understand that Jesus did not come part way down from heaven to us. He came all the way down. No one can say that he's beneath the reach of Jesus Christ. Because he who is the eternal word of God became flesh. He became a man. That is what John is saying. This is the... The magnitude of this is really beyond our... It's certainly beyond my ability to communicate to you. I can't find words to explain this to you that can do it justice. Wish I could. Can't be done. That the eternal word, Jesus, who is the highly exalted one, came down to us. The one who is in fellowship with God before the world began. 
became a human being. That fact alone may be the most astounding thing that separates the true God from all of the gods of this world. No other God that is worshipped by man would so humble himself as to become a man. And John is telling us that this wide span, this wide gulf that's set between God and us, that's inherent in who He is and who we are. There's no way for us to cross it. Moses couldn't do it. We cannot stand before God and gaze upon His glory and live. It cannot be done. But, Jesus Christ, He crossed that span. He bridged that gulf. God Himself bridged that gulf to come down to us. But there's even more to it than that. You see, the next phrase says, "He, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, He didn't make a trip down here from His exalted position just to make a pit stop on earth for a few hours, maybe drop in on a few people and then go back home, see some heads of state and have a little conference. He didn't come down here on a sightseeing trip. It wasn't vacation. You know, he just wanted to get away for a few hours. No, John says he came and he dwelt among us. That expression means he pitched his tent. That's what it's describing. He pitched his tent among us. He took up residence here. On earth. He took upon himself a human body. Sometimes in Scripture our bodies are described as a tent. Paul talks about that. That is the picture I think that's being used here, at least in part. There's probably more to it, but I don't want to go into all that this morning. We could discuss that some other time if you want to talk about it. Whether this refers to the Old Testament tabernacle and all that stuff. I think there's a lot a lot here. But the point here is that Jesus did not simply take a sip from the glass of humanity. He drank the whole cup down to the last drop. You see, He didn't just come down for a visit to kind of see how things were going. He came down to dwell among us. John is saying that Jesus became like us in every way except for sin. See, He took on our humanity completely. This is essential. This is absolutely vital for us to understand. Jesus became like us in every way. All of our human limitations. All of our humanness. Everything that makes us who we are as human beings, He became. And just like in verse 1 of John 1, we can't explain completely and understand completely, how the Word who is face to face with God is also God. And just like in verse 3, we can't always, we can't readily understand 
that the creator of all things was not made himself. And just like in verses, verse 4, we, we can't fully comprehend how the life giver never began to live. He never received life. He's always been. And the light never began to shine. It was always shining. Because he is the light. Okay, these are things we can't fully comprehend. Well, you know what? We can't fully comprehend how the Word of God, the eternal pre-existent God, could become man. How is it possible? Didn't he have to give up some of his godness to do it? No. Because John says the Word became flesh. He didn't stop being the Word. He's the Word. That is... God Himself. But He became flesh. He dwelt among us. So He didn't just come down and stick His little toe the pool. He jumped in. Completely. Fully. Man. Don't ask me to explain it any more than that. That's as far as I can go. But we need to get this because this is so crucial. His understanding of our situation. Jesus understanding of our true condition as men and and women, please understand I'm using it that way, is directly tied to the fact that he lived life as a man. Not just a few moments of time. He lived an entire earthly life as a man. Experiencing the very real struggle which all men face. Even the temptation of sin without being overcome by it. He didn't just come down for a visit. He came to live as one of us. And even as astounding and as amazing as that is, there's more. John points us to something more here. He says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. He says that we saw His glory with our very own eyes. Of course, John's talking about himself here as an eyewitness of Jesus' glory. And we know that from reading the New Testament that John is one of the disciples. He was one of the twelve who was with Jesus for those three years of His earthly ministry. He was one of the three, that inner circle, that got to see some unique things among them the transfiguration of Christ in which he revealed his glory. He also was the disciple who Jesus loved, the one who was the close and intimate one who leaned against his breast the night before he was crucified. And so John is speaking of his own uh, eyewitness here, his own testimony. But see, it's not just those who were with Him in His years here on earth who have seen His glory. This is the beauty of what John is telling us here. Everyone who has received Jesus Christ by believing in His name has seen the glory. That's what John is saying. He didn't come down to earth in order to hide His glory. He didn't come down to show His glory only to a small handful of men and women so they could be the gatekeepers. He came down. He became flesh so that all of us could see His glory. 
Jesus became flesh so that all of us could see his glory. That's the point. His glory is the very glory of God the Father. That's what, G- that's what John means when he says that Christ's glory was as of the only begotten of the Father here uh, in this next fr- in this verse. That phrase, the only begotten of the Father, has troubled many people. Over the years, people have thought they were that this verse was suggesting that Christ was made by the Father. And there are some, of course, we've talked about this in churches, if you want to call them that, that teach that Christ was made by the Father. And they point to expressions like this, only begotten of the Father. That's clearly an indication of that. Well, no, the truth is, we already know this, verse 3 makes it very clear, beyond any doubt, that Christ was not made, that Jesus was not made, that He already was. What John is saying here, when he talks about the only begotten of the Father, is he is emphasizing the uniqueness of Christ. The only begotten of the Father. He is the only one who carries the likeness of the Father. He's the only one who fully and completely shares in the nature and the character of God the Father. He is the only begotten Son. The one and only. There is no other. There can be no other. That's what John is saying. He's not saying that God the Father uh, somehow fathered the Son. That's not what that means. John has already made it very clear that's not possible. Because everything that was made was made by the one who was not made. Jesus Christ. And this is why we can and should read things like the Nicene Creed. You may not be familiar with the Nicene Creed. I hope you are. If you're not, then you should look it up. You should read it. It was written in 325 A.D. With respect to this particular issue, or this particular question, the Nicene Creed says this, We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, one in being with the Father. Jesus Christ was never made. He never began to be. But He is eternally begotten of the Father. You could say it this way, He's made of the same stuff. They share the essence. They share the same essence, the same nature. That's why the glory of Jesus is the same as the glory of the Father. And so that when we have seen the face of Jesus, In the testimony of the Scriptures, we have seen the face of God. And so, we go back and think about Exodus 33 and Moses. God says, you can't see my face. No man can look at my face and live. Then Jesus Christ, the Word of God, became flesh. And when we look on the face of Christ, we are looking We are seeing the glory of God when we see the glory of Jesus Christ. Now John comes to a close, the end of this verse, by describing 
this very important phrase describing the glory of God in Christ. He says it is full of grace and truth. The very fact that the Word would become flesh is a tremendous act of grace on God's part. We already established from Exodus 33 that there's a great gulf between man and God that man cannot cross. It's impossible for us to enter into the presence of God and, and look upon His face and live. And yet, God graciously, not because we deserved it, not based on our merit, but based on God's incomparable love, God came down. That's what John is telling us. This is an act of grace. It's also an act of truth. Because the entrance of Christ into humanity is the final and complete revelation of God to men. This is how we know what God is like. This is how we know who God is. This is how we know God. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus Christ. You want to know who God is? Get to know Jesus Christ. Grace and truth. Jesus Christ is quite literally the embodiment of both grace and truth. And that's really where this all comes together for us. I want to give you a little illustration to see if I can help you see why this is so important. Why it's absolutely vital that Jesus Christ and His glory, which is the same as the glory of the Father, is full of grace and truth. Let's consider a scenario. You've lived your life as a criminal. And you've been convicted of robbery and sentenced to prison. When your term is up, you decide that you're going to go straight. You're going to be an honest man. So you set out to find a job. You meet the owner of a jewelry store, and he hires you to be his night watchman. Now, let's consider what what might happen if the owner of the store were full of truth, but not full of grace. If he were full of truth, he would know who and what you are. It's full of truth, after all. He would never even consider hiring you for the position. Because your crimes would condemn you in his eyes, right? See, just truth. Truth is good, but just truth. You're out of luck. You're condemned. But let's consider the same scenario from a different perspective. Let's say that he's full of grace and not truth. The owner were full of grace and not truth. He might hire you, not knowing the nature of your criminal past. Let's say that He hired you, and one night along came an old friend of yours from back before you became an honest man. He would ask you what you're doing, and you'd say, well, I'm a night watchman. For the jewelry store? Does your boss know what you are? Of course not, you would say. If he did, he he would fire me for sure. Don't say anything. Well, your friend might suggest, then, that you pay him a rather large sum of money to keep his mouth shut about your past. And you would live in constant fear of your boss ever finding out the truth about who or what you are. You see, if he were only grace and no truth, and what if the truth ever came out? You see, there's great fear there. But let's consider what it would be if the owner of the store were full of both grace and truth. 
In this scenario, he would come to you while you're still in prison. He would say to you, I know who you are. I know what you've done. Every crime that you've committed. And you're worse even than you believe yourself to be. However, I'm going to give you a chance to become an honest man. I'm going to trust you with my store full of valuable jewelry. So you take the post as a night watchman. Once again, your old friend comes by and he threatens to expose your past. So you ask him, well, what will you say about me? He says, well, I'll tell him that you were the ringleader of a gang of thieves. And you respond, but my master already knows all that better than you do. And he would have nothing more to say. John says that Jesus is full of grace and truth. He knows who we are. He knows what we have done. And yet still, He offers us the right to become children of God if we receive Him by believing on His name. Jesus, the Word, became a man. So that He could reveal the glory of God to us. And He knows all about us. And rather than run away, rather than back away, rather than decide we're not worth it, He offers us life, redemption, hope. That's what this is all about. That's why it matters. Because God, we couldn't come before God. We couldn't look upon God. Not if we want to live. From the beginning of this series, earlier in the spring, we asked, who is Jesus really? We had a lot of answers to this question. I've already hinted at most of them. We've said Jesus is the Word of God, from verses 1 and 2. He's the Creator of all things, verse 3. He's the Life Giver, verse 4. He's the Light of all mankind, verses 4 and 5. He's not just the man, verses 6 through 8. And he's the Lord who saves. Verses 9 through 13. But today, I would submit to you that based on John chapter 1 and verse 14, we ask the question, who is Jesus really? And this is the answer that we come to. Jesus is the God who became man. Jesus is the God who became man. He crossed that great gulf that separated us from God. So that you could see the face of God by looking at the face of Christ. He reveals to all who believe the unique glory of God, which is His by right, because He is the only begotten, the unique, the one and only Son of God. And He extends the fullness of God's grace and truth to you if you believe and receive Him today. Will you trust in the God who became man? Let's close with prayer.